I think that like that, just trusting yourself, being kind to yourself, realizing that even if what you you feel it goes and believe goes against what everyone else believes, it's still valid. And trusting that was a real critical takeaway. Welcome to episode 39 of Humans of the Trail. Today I am really excited to bring you a fantastic interview with Andrew Terrell. Andrew has a truly fantastic story of self-discovery as he journeyed from the Apennine Starsen in southern Italy to Arctic Norway. This is a true adventure podcast and I really enjoyed speaking of Andrew and helping to share his story with you. So without further ado, I introduce you to 39 of Humans of the Trail with Andrew Terrell. My name is Andrew Terrell. Um, I'm a suburban Londoner who grew up in a sheltered suburban environment um, for reasons that we can probably go into as we get into our conversation. I fell in love with places that weren't the suburbs, um, that didn't have quite so many houses and streets and roads, and ended up becoming uh, a borderline obsessed long-distance hiker. Um, I went on some long journeys and through quirks, various twists, now found myself living in Colorado on the edge of the Rockies, trying to make a writing career work. How's that for an introduction? Brief enough? That is, uh, that's great. That uh, that leaves a lot of questions, but just gives enough detail to tease the audience for what's <laughs> to come. Um, so it's perfect. So you've seen my books. They they're they're on the longer rather than the shorter side. Sometimes I can waffle on a little too much. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll get to the books in a bit. Um. So you you obviously uh, sent out your books to me, um. And I've really enjoyed them, and I do want to talk about those. But I'm going to start with um a question about what really I think defined the beginning of your book which was the accidents you had in the Alps and I just want to start with that because that I feel as an integral part of your story so could you just go into that? Yeah I found a really good way of getting down an alpine mountain quickly you know none of that carefully working down at three miles an hour or two miles and I decided it would be interesting to take an 80 mile an hour shortcut down down a glacier in the Swiss Alps. Um, yeah, so I, I went to the Bernies Oberland in Switzerland in 93. Uh, it was a week long escape from, you know, my suburban life and the job and all the routines that lots of people live with. Lots of people don't really feel they like and fit into. And I didn't feel I fitted into it, but didn't know there was another way of living. So every weekend and every you know spare opportunity every single holiday i had i would head off to the mountains and this was a weekend of ernie's oberland and it was early in the alpine summer i guess it was probably still spring technically yeah it was the end of may early june and i planned to do a week on the alpine pass route which crosses some of the highest hikeable passes and while cr crossing one of them the hotoli pass um i made a few errors of judgment 
um, one of them was being there in the first place um, out of season. And the reason I went out of season was because I wanted to have the mountains all to myself, just because it feels more adventurous and you can get into your own head more and have, you know, a, a sort of wilder experience, even in a populated mountain range. So there was an error of judgment in going at that time of year. And so the snow line was really low. The past was deeply buried in snow. Um, another error I made was carrying the larger backpack than many people would have carried, um, which wasn't necessarily the wisest thing to do when you're crossing steep ground, when it's still buried, buried under snow. Um, I didn't start up the pass until really late in the day because the previous night there'd been a terrible storm that kept me awake all night. So I woke up exhausted. And then by the time I finally got underway, the day was already hot. So wallowing through deep snow to get up to the pass felt precarious as though the snow slopes were all getting ready to avalanche at any minute. And when I reached the top of the pass and looked down from it, it was exceedingly steep, intimidatingly steep. And with the snow so soft, I decided not to go down that night and to stay at the pass. Unfortunately, there was an alpine refuge nearby, so I slept in a winter room there. It wasn't open for the season, um, but there, there was a room that I could stay in. And so the next morning I began down when everything had frozen hard. Um, other people had crossed it within recent days, weeks. There was a line of bucket-sized footprints going down from the pass. and. Although I had crampons with me, I decided not to put them on because I thought they would make getting my feet into the boot holes that were already there awkward. Um, so potentially that was another error of judgment as well. And then just as I began down the pass, um, I heard a clatter of falling rocks coming from a crag overhead that naturally when you hear rocks falling and they're nearby, you wanna see where they're coming from. So I kind of looked up quickly, but in doing that, I fell backwards, I lost my balance, did a kind of backwards cartwheel, landed onto my front, um, dug my ice axe into the snow, just as I practiced many times on in easier places. But as I did it, I hit a bump and managed to let go of the ice axe. And I started careening down this 45, 50 degree slope and a glacier. And um, yeah, that, that experience of falling down a mountain, I lost a thousand feet. I, probably shouldn't have survived it um somehow i did and i go into more detail in the book but coming so close to almost not surviving was definitely a life-changing event because you suddenly realize how precious and fragile life is how fleeting how it could pass in just the blink of an eye you don't even know it's coming and suddenly you don't have a life anymore and I realized with more clarity than I ever had at that point. I, mean, I was only 23, so I didn't have much, much clarity in my life at that age. But I, I realized I hadn't appreciated my the, the, the reality of my existence the way I then did. And so I decided I, did, I, didn't, I didn't want to waste my life. I wasn't happy as a suburban, a normal suburban person. There's no such thing as normal, but that's how you know define it. I actually wanted to live the life on my terms that I felt deep down I wanted to live. So the short from, answer, the short answer. <laughs> I know that's perfect. So from that experience, it would have been all too easy for you to go back to London, carry on with your job and have that renewed sense of purpose and appreciation of life eroded quite quickly. That can happen in, even with life, you know, perceived life changing experiences. But you managed to hold on to that enough to then 
direct that experience into a whole new journey. Um, and it didn't happen straight away, did it? It was, a, did a, if I recall quite correctly, it was a year or so that it took between you having that accident and hitting the trail, having obviously to save up the money to do that. In that period, um, if I am correct in my time scale, how did you hold on to that kind of sense of adventure um, and not sort of lose the conviction you had to actually do that in the first place, if, if that makes sense? Yeah, it was kind of, well, the years leading up to that, I had been profoundly anxious about not living the life I knew I was supposed to be living. Um, so it was a long-term thing. I mean, the bounce down a mountain when I should have died helped clarify it in my mind. But prior to that, since discovering mountains when I went away to college at 18, like five years earlier, and falling in love with actually being out on foot in nature, I knew that that's what I was supposed to be doing. And so once I ended up after college, having a full-time job, being stuck by just, you know, three weeks holiday a year, that was probably the worst period of my life because I was just continuously anxious about not being who I was supposed to be. You know, it, there are there are many different ways that people can feel that kind of anxiety if society doesn't let them be who they're supposed to be. Um, and mine was mine was just that I wasn't in nature and that's where I was supposed to be. And so I always wanted to do something different, but I just didn't know how. And so falling down a mountain just gave me that extra push. But even then, the decision to quit my job and go against everything my upbringing had pushed me to be, you know, you've to fit into society and get a job and save for your retirement and keep everything safe and secure. And my father was strongly encouraged the, the safe route through life. And so it was really hard to break away from all the advice that teachers of school and television and parents and peers and everybody was all about getting a job and you know good good retirement things starting and the whole thing so making that decision even though I knew it was the right decision for me it still took six months of yeah I'm, I'm gonna do this I'm gonna go for a long walk oh, but I can't how how can I pay for it what I'll do afterwards um it was so many times I made the decision and I backed off and then I made the decision again and then I backed off but once I'd made that decision um, and went for my first long walk, which was a six month walk through the Alps from Vienna to, to, to the Mediterranean Sea, um, it wasn't the complete big, big walk across Europe, wasn't the first one. Once I was out on that journey, I kind of looked back and laughed about how much fuss I'd made over what was the best decision in my life up to that point. Because once I was there, it was just right. I was doing exactly what I was meant to be. And I wondered why the decision had taken so long. Okay, interesting. Um, apologies, I, I'd forgotten, of course, you had done, a, a, say, a shorter uh, one previous to doing the, the long one, which is written in the two books. But that's really interesting. So in terms of your father as well, you mentioned in your book and just then that there was that sort of pressure from you know, those around you and your dad included to kind of stick to the safe route. Do you think it was just pure uh, stubbornness in addition to obviously that sort of to and fro of that decision and eventually deciding to stick to the decision? But was it stubbornness that allowed you to eventually go, this is who I am, 
right now and this is what I'm doing? Or was there something external at play that helped kind of to push you in that direction? Because there weren't the influences. Because um, bear in mind, this was in around 1997, wasn't it, when you actually set off? There were not the influences that you have now around getting outdoors and nature and nomadic living and things like that. It was back then, it was way, way more safe. And there was no encouragement to live a non-conventional, um, you know, inverted commas, life. So what was it there that really pushed you towards kind of doing something that was so profoundly different for the time? Yeah, the, this really gets to the heart of the matter. Um, and, you know, I mean, people have been living non-conventional lives for lives for centuries and centuries. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's, it's just like social media didn't exist when I was in that state. I, I, I'd buy outdoor magazines like High Mountain Sports and The Great Outdoors back, back in those days. But and so there was some influence, but it wasn't like the power that we have now through phones and, you know, social media sites. But what it comes down to, I think, is who we fundamentally are as creatures. I didn't understand any of this at the time. All I knew was I wanted to be in the mountains and walking and I didn't want to I didn't want to do a job. So I mean, it wasn't at the level back in my 20s. I didn't understand it. I just knew I wanted to do it. But I've later come to see that. It's linked to you know, us being creatures of the planet, shaped by the natural environment, living in a society where we are essentially divorced from that natural environment. And once you're separate from what we were created in, evolved in, you know, all our senses and physical traits and abilities and emotions and instincts were formed by nature. And in the last 300 years, we've really moved away from that. And through that moving away, we're no longer connected to what we are. So for me, without knowing it, it was that instinctive reaching to be fully human again. And it sounds really ridiculous and maybe over the top, but I think it's so profoundly true that away from nature, we're not complete. When, we're, when we have as parts of our life, when we're immersed in nature, we become complete again. And it doesn't mean we have to live every second of our day in nature, or we have to move back to living in caves, um, hunting and gathering. It just means we can have this, you know, the wonderful world that, that we've created. We need to balance it out a bit better, but we need the balance of time in nature as well. And that's what I was craving. I was craving nature without knowing why. Interesting. I should probably save this question for the end, but I don't want to forget it. I'm going to ask it now. For you then, and we'll get to the walk in a minute because obviously that is essential to this podcast. But for you, what stopped you from just accepting the idea that you could potentially find that balance with weekends away and the occasional holiday and, you know, um, enjoying the nature that might be at your doorstep if you say had moved, you know, out of London at that age? What what was it for you that thought, you know what, it's go big or go home. I'm going to go and do a massive walk was that non-negotiable for you or did it even cross your mind to maybe temper your um your ambition somewhat i didn't really consider the alternative i just ultimately knew what i wanted and i wanted to find a way of making it happen and i just made it happen um yeah i i didn't really think is there a more balanced way i just knew i just want to walk and because I, I don't just want to walk for weekends. I want to walk for six months. And then when I went for a six-month walk, I thought, six months isn't long enough. I want to do something even longer. I, I, I want a journey that doesn't just feel like a summer walk. I wanted a journey that felt like it was actually my life 
rather than just an escape, which is when I came up with the one of doing the hike that was a year and a half long. So good intersection into that particular walk. Now, you've written two books about this. The Earth Beneath My Feet was the first one, which I've read. And I really enjoyed these particular books and the reviews for on Amazon were just fantastic as well, which speaks for itself. So that's, you know, um, worth worth looking at for sure. Now, could you just give a little bit um, about the walk and about the two books, um, Earth Beneath, Beneath My Feet and On Sacred Ground? Um, and just kind of a synopsis as such, and then we'll go into a few more questions about that, um, that experience. So yeah, the, the walk I chose to do was the length of Europe from the bottom of Italy all the way up to the top of Norway. Um, after my two longish walks I did before that, I'd walked the length of the Alps, spending six months weaving everywhere in the Alps, and then three months the following summer weaving through the Pyrenees on the French and Spanish border, um, I thought I thought about doing, I, I knew six months wasn't long enough for me. I wanted to do something longer. Um, I thought about going to bigger mountains, maybe the Rockies, maybe the Himalayas, maybe the Andes. But then I thought there's plenty of time. I, I might as well finish off Europe first. Um, there's several mountain ranges I haven't walked the length of yet. Um, the, the mountains of Scandinavia, which stretch a thousand miles up Norway and the top part of top part, part of Sweden. And the Apennine mountain range in Italy, which looked interesting on the map. Um, I like the idea of doing both of those ranges, walking and exploring both of those places. And I was at work after one of my long journeys and I must have spoken aloud and said, well, why not walk them both in one go, join them together? And someone sitting near me piped up, too long, can't do that, um, which I took as a wonderful challenge spur of the moment thing decided yeah maybe I could maybe I could walk the length of Italy and then weave through the center of Europe through the Alps again and I looked at the map through the range of lower mountains that stretch around the Czech border and through Germany um, the Bohemian Forest and the Harz Mountains and the Turingerwald um, why not join these two different mountain ranges together and make one really long walk so that was the plan, to walk the length of Europe, to go from a Mediterranean climate up to the European Arctic, um, to link, southern Italy is known as the land of the midday sun, because in summer the sun sits directly overhead and it's searing hot. Um, and so Arctic Norway is known as the land of the midnight sun. And I thought it'd be wonderfully, you know, poetically appropriate to link the land of the midday sun with the land of the midnight sun in one journey. Um, so yeah, I, I came up with this plan. Um, the two books describe the complete journey. The first book, The Earth Beneath My Feet, covers Italy and the Alps. Um, the second book picks up the story north of the Alps and continues to the top of Norway. Um, assuming I make it, because you, you don't want you know, spoilers and everything. I guess I do, because I'm still alive. Um, and yeah, I, I, I didn't do the journey to write a book, but the journey had such good shape to it it changed me enough enough happened that I felt it was a story worth telling because of the things I learned about myself um I thought it was worth writing a book I had no idea if it would be of any interest to anybody else other than myself when I started writing it I thought my mum might like it my dad probably not because he thinks it's a bad idea um but I, I you know I, I didn't didn't know anyone else was, was good was going to enjoy it or relate to it and so it's been very heartening to 
see people writing reviews to say they appreciated it. And what's fun is how different people seem to appreciate different aspects of the journey too, from mm. feedback. You know, some people like the nature stories, some people like the encounters with strangers, you know, the best bits of travel are when you meet up with someone you've never met before and you instantly click and, you know, wonderful situations you end in. So some people like the people parts and some people like the self-growth story because I've always liked journeys of self-growth where it's as much about what's going on inside a person as it is the ground they're covering. Um, so yeah, that that side of that side of doing a solo journey that was very solo back then because you know didn't have a phone or the internet or anything, um, and now sharing it with people is wonderful because for me it makes the the journey is ongoing through that aspect. You know, connecting I've, I've connected with people who have emailed me because they read the book and these wonderful connections mean that I didn't, I, I didn't finish when I got to the top of Norway. It's still, it's still ongoing. That's, that's fascinating. And what I really enjoyed about the, the journey that you took is that the two areas, the, you know, Italy and the Apennines and, and Norway are so distinctive in terms of climate did you find it difficult to adapt between the two climates, between that searing hot where your feet hurt and there were flies everywhere to the cold, you know, climate in Norway where you had to wear, you know, rubbish snowshoes to try and get through the, the, the you know, the, the heavy snow? Um, because or, or did you find that you kind of just adapted as the climate gently changed with you as you moved along the way? Which one was it? Well, it's a little bit of both, I guess. I mean, the the changes were graduate, graduate, gradu gradual, because it doesn't suddenly become autumn and it doesn't suddenly become winter. It becomes autumn becomes winter, then it's autumn again, and then you flash a summer. You know, it merges. Of course, you're not hitting a wall of a brand new climate right. as you and move into Norway. <laughs> the human body is amazingly adaptive. Forget the mind itself. If you step outside your front door in the middle of winter and it's snowing or lashing rain the instant impact is profound or profoundly unpleasant sometimes but when you've been out there for two hours or three hours you don't really notice it anymore and so when you're out there for weeks at a time and then months at a time what, what might seem physically dis physically uncomfortable when you imagine it is just the way things are um if you go for a long winter backpacking trip you'll be amazed at what doesn't seem cold after a while um, but I think the biggest thing for me is the, isn't the physical side. It was the internal side. And the simple fact is I was where I wanted to be, which means no matter how cold it was or how hot it was or how physically uncomfortable it was, and it often was all of those things, it was so much more bearable because the alternative being stuck back in London in a job I didn't want was even more unbearable. And I've people have read the book and said it was sounds so grueling and uncomfortable at times. And how did you deal with it? Um, and in actual fact, it wasn't so hard to deal with again because this is I, I, I was living the life I wanted, and that just reduces all of the hardships in a way that's hard to hard to describe. I feel so when you did the walk obviously this this was you know some years ago now and the world has changed significantly one, one of the things that really struck me from 
your writing is that for much of your time in Italy, apart from a few little spots where you crossed over some long distance trails, you were the only walker um, there. You were the only person who was carrying a huge backpack and, you know, perceived as mad enough to do this with people telling you they'll get, hit, hit you a lift down to the to the town you were heading to because you couldn't possibly walk that distance. Meanwhile, you'd already walked, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles behind you. Do you feel or have you had any experience, in fact, where you've returned to those places since and um, and kind of seen a difference? Have you managed to do that since doing the walk? No, unfortunately, I haven't been back to I, I, the, the only place on my route that I've been back to is the Dolomites in Italy. And I went back for a backpacking trip in, in winter there again. And obviously there aren't that many people backpacking in winter in the Alps anyway. Um I don't actually think that most of the places I pass through have changed. I'm, I'm not sure the world has changed enough to mean that someone couldn't go and do my journey again and have a very similar experience. I don't think you could do it in England because you can only go to Europe for three months now before you have to leave, thanks to certain political decisions that have been made <laughs> in my absence since I moved to America. Um, so that would limit a British person going and doing an 18-month walk in Europe but someone who's still in the EU could still do it. Um, I know someone who's been to Southern Italy a few times since then, and they say that Calabria, um, which features at the start of the book, remains as remote and as trailless, and the, the mafia remain as much of an influence now as it was as it was then. Um, I th think if someone were to go to do a long distance walk. Um, if they decided to leave their devices behind, um, which not everyone would, I know, and if they went by, if they went on their own, they could have exactly the same kind of immersive experience in nature because nature hasn't changed. Maybe a few of the glaciers are smaller. Maybe it rains more in some places and it's dry in others, but nature still is what it is. And alone you would connect to it over time, inevitably, and I think, a lot, again, on a long trip, you would end up meeting people and being invited into homes. Um, some people would turn you away. Some would be helpful. Some would be mean. Um, depending upon who you are and how inward looking you are, um, you would you know, experience highs and lows and growth. I think when you spend time alone in nature, inevitably, you end up knowing yourself a lot better. Even if you're not that introspective, I think nature just helps you focus um, on what's real. It gives you perspective on so much of life. So, yeah, although lots of things have changed, I still think the kind of journey I did is 100 percent possible. And I have to say, actually, b b before a, an online question and answers I, I did with someone, one of the questions was expressing real doubt that a journey like mine could take place because people just aren't as friendly anymore. It's interesting. And so I actually posed that question on a hiking group on Facebook to see if people who have done big recent hikes have had any experiences of, you know, spontaneous kindness from people. And I, I'm especially interested in people in people who weren't following, you know, the main established trails like the Appalachian Trail or, or the Pacific Crest Trail or the, or the Camino in, in Spain. And the, and the overwhelming response from everybody was, it was just this long list of stories of kindness from strangers. So. So again, yeah, I, I, the world is is amazing out there, despite the negativity that's thrust in front of us continuously. I can vouch for the kindness. So having done a fair few of these podcasts now, 
with long distance walkers and you know and, and people who who just get out on the trail a lot i can say that the recurring theme the very obvious recurring theme through this is the kindness of strangers you know whether somebody is just enjoying you know a, a, a multi-week trip or a you know multi-year trip always comes back to how kind and how generous people are of course not everybody have experiences but overwhelmingly the vast majority of people who my guests come into contact with are welcoming and bring them into their homes for for food and for a warm bed if possible and that really sticks out with me and obviously from reading your book that was no different for you at all which is great great to hear and the world hasn't in my opinion my personal opinion got any less kind we just read it differently based on what I think we're told now yeah. whether and this, and this is gonna be a very difficult question to answer and I'm going to just ask you to pick out maybe one or two things were there perhaps a couple of things or experiences in the walk that particularly stood out to you above all else that really are baked into the, your, 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 your memory as, as things that when you think back to the walk, they just stand out as, um, as moments for you? There are so many. I mean, there are some key ones towards the end of the journey. And I don't know if I want to elaborate on them too much because I know you're planning on reading the second book and I don't want to spoil the story, but I'd been underway. I, I would say what I found in, in Arctic, Norway and Sweden was beyond my expectations. And having been underway for so long, it hit me in a way it might not have if I just went there for a two week walk. The fact that I'd been out in nature by that point for 16, 15, 16 months predisposed me to react to the situations I encountered up there in a different way than I might have done. And it changed me. I, I found a level of, of fulfillment and happiness that I didn't even know exist. I haven't, I've, I've searched to try and find a word to sum up the happiness that I found up there and the contentment I found. And there isn't even a word in the dictionary. And I've really looked. Um, I called it the Pagelenta happiness because that's the area where I ended up in a different, what to me felt like a different plane of existence. And so having experienced that there and having known what's possible has it completely changed my life. It's something I still carry inside with me every day because I, I, I know what life can be. And because of the intensity of being out in nature that sticks in mind in a way, you know, normal routines don't. And you've, you've, you've probably experienced this. You've been on mountains and you can recall specific moments as though they've just happened. Probably you can imagine what what you were feeling and what 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 it what it smelt like and certainly yeah. like, like the intensity sometimes of the mountains goes so deep you end up carrying it with you and so, so like that particular part of the journey I still live when I decide to push my mind in that direction and it, it informed everything going forwards um so yeah northern Norway and Sweden sticks in mind um but so many you know as i say the intensity it sounds like you couldn't imagine remembering enough about an 18 month journey to write a moderately understandable story about it but the real themes of the journey the highs and the lows correspondingly because there were some real lows too sunk so deep that i 
didn't necessarily need the 10 journals I kept or look at all the you know, 7,000 slides I took to be able to tell a story. It was all still there and it's all still there now, which is one of the great things about mountain adventures and mountain journeys is it isn't just about living them at the moment. It's about what you take from that moment and continue to live moving forwards. I'm interrupting this episode to talk to you about Highlander, not the 1986 film, but Highlander Adventure, who organised spectacular, curated multi-day hikes in some of the most beautiful hand-picked locations across the globe. In June 23, Highlander are arranging their first Lake Districts event, giving hikers an opportunity to enjoy a rewarding multi-day trek through the National Park. With 96 and 52 kilometer routes available, there's options for all abilities, complete with food, a great sense of community, checkpoints, and dedicated overnight camping spots, and a program of evening activities. The 96k route starts on Wednesday the 5th of July, and the 52k route starts on Friday the 7th of July, with both routes wrapping up on Sunday the 9th of July. Highlanders events are fantastic for both beginners and experienced alike, but if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you're eager to dive into your first multi-day walk, yet you're unsure where to begin and which trail to walk, then the Highlander Lake District event may be for you. Highlander really work hard to offer something totally unique and special for the hiking community and their passion shines through, which is why I am delighted to be attending the event in July and I'll be taking a roaming podcast studio with me. You can join me and may even be included within the podcast by signing up today using the discount code LAKES20 to enjoy 20% off. You can find out more by visiting highlanderadventure.com and searching for the Lake District Adventure under the Europe tab on the website. So that's highlanderadventure.com. Now back to the podcast. And so all of the wonderful encounters I had with people was unexpected. And that aspect of the journey, the fact that I, I suddenly realized I, I, I could get along with people. Um, and ultimately, as the journey went on, especially through winter, I started to realize that I needed more people in my life than I thought I needed. So realizing I was actually a member of a species that has achieved what it's achieved through being social through working together rather than, you know, buggering off to the woods by themselves, um, changed my outlook on life as well. Um, and so on the next long journey I did, um, having walked the length of Europe, I decided I wanted to walk the length of North America too, um, which I started in 2000, trying to walk from the Mexican border all the way up across the United States, then all the way across Canada to Denali National Park in Alaska. Um, it was on that journey that I happened to bump into someone who I very foolishly fell in love with um, and falling in love with someone completely ruined, I mean, changed everything. Um, and suddenly I was no longer focused on my own journeys in the mountains. I was focused on another person and that ended up, you know, doing a long distance transatlantic relationship thing and eventually moving to Colorado and making a home and starting a life here. Um, and again, because I suddenly, because of my my longest journey, I, I was suddenly open to people. And being open to people, like I say, it completely changed everything. And if you don't mind me asking you, Andrew, um, about your stammer. So one of the things you mentioned in the book, and I've I've heard the stammer as well on um, the Hike podcast, where you had a moment where you stammered. And 
um you know it doesn't happen very often now was it the walk that really helped you to overcome that because i remember you saying in the book that there was something around the the fact that you couldn't stammer when you were trying to bodge your way through italian talking to people because you, you naturally you were stammering through the language anyway as you normally would but did the walk help with the stammer and did it and, and how did it help to grow your confidence back then as well you know i still stammered after the journey mm. um I, I didn't stammer in italian because italian is such a beautiful thing song your language. exactly it's like it's not like english yeah. um, or german german was much harder for me with all mm. the hard guttural sounds you have to make if you want to be understood um i, I still had the stammer and i i you know i I, did, I haven't really looked that much into what causes causes stammers i think various things but essentially you know part of the brain isn't quite working um in the way you want it to to do for me i think it was always a lack of confidence in how I perceived myself and how I expressed that and what I had to say. And so when I was a kid, like at school, I never felt like my answers to the teachers were ever right. And so I would approach, well, you know, asked to stand up in a class of 30 kids and you, you have to give an answer to some horrible maths problem or, or some English question. And, and it would just be terrifying because I knew I'd get it wrong. And I knew the classroom would roar at my pitiful attempts to articulate even getting three words together. Um, but after the journey, once I really started thinking about everything I'd gone through, and especially when I started writing about the outdoors and about my journeys, which I, I actually started doing that in 2000 um, by, by blind luck, writing forced me to really analyze my own thoughts Um and eventually I came to see that my own thoughts and emotions and reactions were valid. Like so sometimes something happens to you in life and you feel ashamed of how you react, almost as though it's wrong. That's wrong because if someone does something that annoys you, your annoyance is valid. If someone does something that embarrasses you, your embarrassment is valid. And I eventually reached that point where I started to believe in myself my own validity, my own thoughts were based on on real things, not 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 something that, that my teachers or other people close to me could just you know say, ah, oh, that's a load of rubbish. Like like wanting to go for a for a seven thousand mile walk, people would say, that's stupid. That's, you're not doing the you're not doing life right, and so you would doubt yourself. But I eventually learned not to doubt myself, and I think with that, learning to trust what I had to say helped to overcome whatever blockage was in my brain that stopped me being able to communicate and there's still something real there that some occasionally surfaces but I think that like that just trusting yourself being kind to yourself realizing that even if what you you feel it goes and believe goes against where everyone else believes it's still valid and trusting that was a real critical takeaway that's really interesting and and, and massively profound as well as particularly being valid within those feelings. And one of the questions I've got around that as well is reflecting on your experience as a younger version of yourself back in your 20s. Am I correct when you did this? Yeah, do, doing this, this, this walk. Do you recognize yourself within the pages, particularly when you're writing the book? So by that, I mean, it's very easy to look back at sort of old photographs of yourself and almost see yourself as something out of fiction because it's such a long time ago and those memories are so kind of vague 
But did you kind of feel that you were writing about your true experience, even when you were trying to create the book? Or did it feel, did you feel somewhat removed from that because of the distance, the time distance between now and then? It, it goes back to that same intensity of experience thing we, we talked about earlier. Um, I, I still feel as though I can step straight back into so many parts of that journey because essentially I'm still the same person, even though, I, you know, even though I've lived two and, two and a half decades since then and look at the world differently, I can remember exactly how I felt at the time. And I do have the journals I kept. I mean, at the end of every day's walk, I would curl up in my tent and spend half an hour to an hour writing down the events, not just the events, you know, the events that occurred, but also my emotions, my reactions to them, how I felt about it. And I would I would transcribe particularly entertaining conversations because the actual words used were so important to why the conversations were, you know, funny or amusing or insightful or impactful. Um, so I don't feel it was it was difficult at all to become who I was then in writing it. And I really tried hard to tell, you know, the honest truth about what the journey was at the time. But I also knew inevitably that some of it will be altered and informed by how differently I look at the world now, you know, as a dad with older teenagers and, you know, having changed countries and having discovered that actually it is possible to find a balanced life with nature and, you know, society without having to disappear for 18 months. Um, so the, the book is a, is a real, the books are a real attempt to write the journey from a 27 year old's perspective but there's a small percentage of it that is also who I am now, and especially further as the book goes on, because a lot of, like the interesting thing about writing is, or the interesting thing between experience and writing is you can have an experience and you can fully understand it without being able to articulate it even to yourself. It's like an instinctive understanding because so much of what we feel and so much of our emotions goes so far beyond language and language is you know whatever 20 30,000 words but experiences and emotions are kind of infinite they go way beyond that and so writing the book helped me kind of pull it back into a way that made sense in a way that can be articulated so um the books are a representation representation of me as I experienced it, but also as I understand it now, 20 years later. So it's, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it is the journey, but it's from a slightly different angle. Mm, that's really interesting. And may I ask as well, what was it that kind of made you, or not made you perhaps, but why, why, why was it that you waited 20 years to, to do that? Because by, by all accounts from everything you're saying I'm guessing that you would have come out from that walk feeling hyped and confident and you'd already written for publications and newspapers to try and you know or not try but to successfully raise funds for the trip when you're on on the road um, and you could have at that point got pen to paper and written a, a you know written these two books or more or done you know done some some sort of literature around them but you you didn't you waited until later on in life which is totally valid but um why, why was it that you did decide to wait with that was that by design or was that by you just never really considered to do it until later on in life 
as in all things, it's a combination of factors. Um, I actually did try and I wrote some sample chapters and I sent them off to endless publishers and lots of people wrote back. I mean, the, the publishers that wrote back said, we, we like it, but we don't think it's for us. Um, the publishing industry is a very difficult industry to break into. Um, so I tried right after the journey. I don't think I was a very good writer back then. I don't think I'd really had time to adapt and learn the craft to tell a story the way it should be told. So I'm actually glad that no one picked it up then because I don't think I would have written the book I've written now, um, you know, with a little more maturity. Um, and then I went for another long journey and that kind of got in the way. And then I fell in love and got married and then kids came along. And so kind of life happened that stopped me going into, you know, spending more time writing the story. And plus that the journey itself had taught me how to live in the moment. And I realized that writing a book would be not living in the moment, which would be, I'd be doing the very opposite of what the journey had taught me to do. Um, so I just, it, it just kind of got pushed to the side and I was busy, you know, moving to another country and having adventures on my doorstep and different kinds of journeys. I mean, raising a family is the best kind of journey. It's so rewarding in so many ways. It, I mean, it's very different from being on a, on a long walk in the mountains. It's not, you know, necessarily a physical journey covering ground, but every day, has its challenges and its rewards. And so that kept me from writing. But eventually, I think I, around about 2015, 2014, I realized that it was still a journey worth telling. So I started a, a blog to try and write up some of my journals. And for a short while, it was it, it was it was growing popular um i mean maybe 10 people reading it whatever it wasn't hugely popular but enough people were reading it and commenting that made me think oh, i do have a story worth telling maybe it's better to actually try and write a book after all so i paused the blog also because it was taking way more time than it should have done um it was stopping me from living my life yeah and i i i, I just like every, every few evenings i would sit down and try and write a little more of the book and i wanted to do it in a way that didn't detract from getting out in nature and didn't detract from my family and I also had a day job working as a graphic designer to you know pay my way so my wife didn't do all the work um so you know it was, it was very much writing the books initially was very much a part-time thing eventually I wrote the book and again tried to find a publisher um even though you know I I I, I, I by that point I'd learned my writing craft but again I still couldn't break through because there are so many gates gatekeepers um so many so many authors of you know who are now famous and well established had their books turned down hundreds of times and i would i was i was going to be in that category and i just wanted to get the story out by this point um that i decided to pay for professional editors myself and self-publish it because the options are now there um so yeah i formed formed my own publishing imprint treated it um, professionally and the books are now out there and people appear to be enjoying it. So, I had not realised that it was self-published. Um, I'm so used to seeing self-published books that are obviously self-published that I hadn't even twigged on that yours was. So um, kudos that's to you. That's good to hear. Yeah, I mean, it didn't even, well, didn't even cross my mind it was self-published. Right, but, but you know, so I mean, self self publishing, yes, it has a, some people have a bad, rep, it has a bad reputation because people mm. will write it, they won't. Yeah rewrite it and I probably rewrote my book a hundred times mm. to get it down and then I paid for an editor a, a, a professional editor to take it to the next level um mm. I don't know if you know Alex Roddy I do um, yeah yeah so right, 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 ed, to the side, he, right to the sidetracked 
and other things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's the editor of Sidetrack now. And he's written for the great outdoors for a long time. Yeah. He, he recently published a book, The Further Shore, which is well worth a read. But he's a very good editor. And he was able to help me move to the next stage to point out bits that I needed to include that I hadn't and to get rid of all of the silly grammatical errors, which as an untrained writer I had in there. And then after working through his his edits and I'm a graphic designer, so I could handle that side. And then I, you know, then, then I paid for a proofing editor to go through it again. So self-published kind of maybe paints the wrong impression because it's a professionally edited and produced book so you've just managed the process yourself yes. rather than through yeah that, that's that's fascinating and I think that's why it comes across as as a as a well-polished and professional publication because of the amount of work um particularly if Alex has been involved because I enjoy um you know reading sidetrack to have a stack behind me just behind that curtain there anyway so yeah, that's um, great yeah so um one thing that really struck me about the the book was that and I really enjoyed this. There was an absence of the sense of Andrew being out of nature to conquer nature. There wasn't this sense of hype of you around you being there that, you know, you were. You didn't even mention the, the concept of how you were kind of even challenging yourself, which is so frequently mentioned in a lot of media about how, you know, you should push your limits and challenge yourself and conquer nature and, you know, take on that summit, et cetera, et cetera, which I see a lot now. And is that something that just came naturally to you to not kind of write or think in that particular way? Or what did, was that a conscious choice to steer, your way, steer yourself away from writing about things in that way? Um, and just to add to that as well, did you consciously not turn it into a sort of self-help guide intersected with experiences around the walk? Because it's so easy for a lot of outdoor books to kind of fall into that category of, here's a bit about my experience, what happened, blah, blah, blah. And here's how you can apply this to make your life better. When it was actually nothing about the, you know, that experience is so unique to the, to the walker that actually it can't apply to the person's life who's reading it often. Um, so sorry, a bit of a ramble of questions there, but hopefully you can answer them. No, I, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. With regards to the self-help aspect of it. I mean, I knew that what I learned out there worked for me, but I had no idea whether, whether any of it would be beneficial to someone else and I doubted it would be because we are all unique you know we're all such a unique blend of all the influences that have made us who we are you know family and culture and all, all of the influence we've chosen all of those that are just thrust upon us so what what happened to me was you know potentially irrelevant to, to other other people improving their life and it would seem a little arrogant to assume that I had lessons that can make other people's lives better um, and so I guess the journey, like the conquering aspect of it, I went for the experience. I didn't go because I wanted to walk from point A to point B and say, hey, look what I did. I went because I wanted the experience of each individual moment. Like the destination was just an excuse. Having the North Cape at the top of Norway was just a point to aim to because you kind of have to have a point, a direction for a journey to have purpose and meaning. Um, you can just wander anywhere, but somehow it's not quite quite the same without that sense of direction but I wasn't going I didn't go on the walk and I think I, I mentioned this in, in the book I didn't go on the walk to get somewhere I went on the walk to be somewhere and so I all I really wanted to wanted wanted to do naturally was to write about the experience um and inevitably I challenged myself because that's 
part of being human human beings. We challenge ourselves and we grow through meeting these challenges. If we never challenge challenge ourselves, we would just be sitting there on the couch all day. Life would be very we, we we just wouldn't grow. It would be a little dull. We sat there watching Netflix all day or whatever. Um, but I, I, I think, like, you, there probably is some element of challenge of pushing oneself in it. But I think, like I said, I think that's such an important part of being a human. It's why I did it. You know, it's it, it's why people quest for knowledge or why we went to the moon and we'll probably go further. It's this aspect of wanting to see what's on the other side of the mountain, you know, in, in the next valley is such an essential part of being a human being. Um, and that's I guess that's a big aspect of what the journey was. I think it's from what I what I really liked is that the challenge aspect. Of course, you spoke about it in the books, but it didn't come across as preachy. It came across around you talking about your challenge. I, I, for some reason, I really enjoyed the chapter about the flies. Of all the things that that would challenge somebody in, in that environment, you're thinking blisters, dogs, you know, uh, hostile locals, which really wasn't a problem. And the things that drove you to utter madness was the flies. And, you know, I've had experiences, or similar experiences myself, where flies are just a horrendous, you know, spawn of the devil that just land all over your sweat and the more you walk the more you sweat and the more you sweat the more flies want to eat your sweat off you and so that 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 chapter felt for me very relatable because I've had those kinds of experiences so anyway now um, I, one one thought I had worth adding hmm. on I, I also don't think that I'm like, like lots of books are fascinating and well worth reading and the hmm. adventure's amazing because the people that do them are genuinely impressive athletes athletically gifted people oh, totally. who do the kind of things that normal people can't do you know like I, I enjoyed the climber Craig Caldwell's book The Push about climbing um, the Dawn Wall in Yosemite Valley um, it's a brilliant book and it's about this you know nine long nine year long journey to climb this ridiculously hard climb to, to, to free climb it for the first time rather than aid climb um, but he's an incredibly gifted athlete and not many people could go and climb the dawn wall free no matter how many lifetimes they put into it but i think many 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 people could do the journey i did because you don't need to be athletically gifted to do it um you know i only walked on average like 13 to 14 miles a day so it wasn't really very far um you know lots of people who go fast packing now doing 40 mile a day 40 mile days and that's at a level of athleticism that i can't really relate to I think it must be an amazing experience, but I couldn't do it. And so I don't think that's why I, I approached the journey as me conquering anything, because I knew that I'm not anything special. I'm just an average walker going for a long walk. And that's that. maybe that's why some people have found it relatable, because they could picture potentially themselves doing it. Interesting. Um, now, you may have covered parts of this. In fact, you have covered parts of this question and some previous answers that you've given. But I'll ask, ask it anyway, because I think there might be something here. If you were Andrew today in 2023, in your 20s, and you were doing the walk with the current outdoor scene that we have, trail developments, the tourism booms, and particularly the handheld technology, mapping softwares, et cetera, et cetera, that we now have, do you think that would change your experience to it? I'm not talking about the experience in nature because as you said in nature is still there but do you think it would have changed your 
approach, your connectivity to the outside world? How how would you think how do you think that would have changed it for you? I don't know is the honest answer. Um, I don't know. I suspect because I'm no stronger willed than anyone else that I probably would have taken a device. And I like to think I wouldn't have, but I probably would. And I probably would blog and send pictures from the trail if I could to get a social media following because I, I would have seen it as an opportunity to make walking into a career rather than something I did and maybe one day could write a book about. So realistically I probably would have fallen prey to it back then and done that I mean why not I'm, I'm, no, I'm no different from anybody else but if I, I I'm, I'm planning to do more long journeys again when my kids are left home once you know I, I no longer have the responsibilities of, of them needing to have a dad around um once they're away at college I want to go on more long journeys because that's what I'm so passionate about. And I've willingly put it on hold for 20 plus years because I made a deliberate choice to get married and have kids. And it would be so wrong to turn your back on that because you, your kids didn't ask, you know, didn't ask to be born to a dad who wants to be wandering around the world. So, but, so I do want to get back out there. And I, I'm hoping I'm going to be strong enough when I do it again to go back for a pure experience and not feel the need or the pressure to to blog from the trail and send pictures from the trail to actually just go out there again and and maybe have an emergency device with me as I'm older and becoming frailer just in case something goes wrong in a way I didn't worry about in my 20s but not to not to do the version that you you know wondered about um, mm. I like Co Colorado has um, 58, 14,000 foot mountains that people like people here like to collect in the same way that people like to bag Munros and Wainwrights. Um, some of them are a little higher and a little harder, but it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's a thing that people do. I'd love to do a long walk weaving from my home over all those mountains and then back to my home over a four or five month journey. And people have done it in like 10, 11 days, but my aim is always slow and really soak up the experience. But I'd like to do that and not take a phone with me and just to have the raw experience again, you know, scribbling in my journal at night, just the way I used to. Um, but we'll see if I end up being strong enough to do that when it comes by. I don't know. That's that's really interesting, actually. I want to go there. So you you finished this walk in what year was it you finished? So you started 1980. Oh, yes, sorry. 1998. 1998. Right. Okay, thank you. And you then, um, after you finished the walk, what what did that look like for you? Was it sort of a go return to home and go back to your job, or how did life change for you at that point? Yeah, it was it was return to home, but this time it didn't give me the anxiety I mentioned before because I knew I was only passing through because I I went I, I the moment I got back I pretty much started planning another long journey which was the 6,000 mile walk through North America that I talked about. Um, so I could deal with suburbia because I knew I would go there and earn some freelance, earn some money as a freelance graphic designer and then save up and then do another long journey, um, which, which again, I wanted to raise money for the homeless for, because I'm doing this, I might as well makes, you know, do some good with it at the same time. Um, so I, 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 
it, 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 my life didn't really change. I mean, I had everything I'd experienced from the journey and I was ridiculously happy with what I'd done and I was ready for the next adventure. But then it was on the next adventure that I fell in love, which completely changed my direction through life. Um, my dream from when I like, when I discovered the hills at 18, when I went away to college, um, which itself was based on childhood experiences, like reading The Hobbit and reading James Herriot's books about the Yorkshire Dales, that like gave me a glimpse into nature that I didn't didn't have where I was growing up and so my, my dream had always been to be like live near mountains somehow I had no idea how I was going to make it happen because I wasn't going to get a job as a shepherd or you know I, I, how, how, is, how am I going to live near mountains as a, as a suburbanite but eventually you know falling in love and then falling in love with someone who happened to live in Colorado on the edge of the Rocky Mountains um I, I made, you know, when you fall in love, you have to make the emotional decision, but you also have to make the practical decision. And I made a decision based upon the fact that, well, I'm in love, but also she lives in the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> so it was, you know, that changed my life. And I achieved yes. what I dreamt of since I was a kid, mm. mountains on my doorstep. Mm. So I didn't How... need the long journey because I had mountains every day. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to ask Andrew. Um, you're you're doing this walk, six thousand miles. You're in America, in a different country. How did you and your wife meet? I w it was in an area of northern Colorado called the Troublesome Roadless Area, and it was one of those days where by five p.m. I found this perfect place to camp. It was a meadow with a creek twisting through it, and mountains, a nice mountain backdrop. And there are actually storm clouds bubbling up over the mountains. So I should have stopped and camped right there. But for some reason on that day, when I'd already covered 20 plus miles, I just kept walking and I crossed over a pass with a storm moving in and then dropped down into the next valley, which annoyingly had a road in it. And there were people, you know, who had driven up and camped in it. So instead of the pristine wilderness on one side, I'd end up in a more developed and natural and semi-natural area. Um, and finally, after two miles of walking down this valley, seeing there's nowhere to camp, I came across this group who were camping. And as I was walking by, I just joked to this girl who was un unpacking her Jeep. I said, I see you guys have taken all the decent camping spots here. Um, you know, I was just being lighthearted and chatty. And she turned around and said, well, would you like to camp with us? Um, and, and, and I said and she was kind of cute and attractive and around my age. And because I was the shy person, I still was, I, 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 and very English. I was like, oh, it's, it's, it's okay. I, I think I'll just keep walking. <laughs> um, fortunately, as I was saying that, I was like, Andrew, no, what are you doing, you idiot? <laughs> um, fortunately, um, she invited me to stay again. She said, no, camp with us. Um, and so I did. And that was Joan, my wife. Um, I ended up with camping with her and the group from the Colorado Mountain Club um, who, who who were there as part of a wilderness mapping weekend to try and get that area or the area just beside it turned into officially protected wilderness. Um, and so I, I camped with them and we had a wonderful evening um, chatting and I had a lot of good stories from my journeys up to that point to share, which went down well. Um, and yeah, we we ended up exchanging emails and staying in touch and then that first half of the journey had to end early because by the time I got to Northern, but by the time I got to Wyoming, all of the public lands north of it, all of the mountains and wilderness areas was, were closed because they were on fire. It was a really bad fire season and no one was allowed into the wild um, or you faced a $5,000 fine. Um, so I had to go back to England, but I planned to return to the trail in winter once the fires were out. And the only way to do that would be to ski 
Um, and I didn't know how to ski, but I remembered meeting Joan who'd worked teaching handicapped kids how to ski. So I thought if she could teach handicapped kids how to ski, maybe she can teach me an Englishman how to ski. So I came back to Colorado to spend a week with Joan and she taught me how to ski. And it was during that week that I really fell in love um, and suddenly didn't want to be on the trail anymore. I wanted to stay with Joan, but I committed to this journey because I was raising funds for the homeless and I couldn't let them down and I wanted to get to the end anyway. And But anyway, yeah, that's the... So you did you a you, shortish version of how we met. Yes. Yeah, so, so did you or didn't you finish it? Sorry, at the end. Did you I ended up walking four thousand miles of a six thousand mile journey? And then in the Northern Rockies, realizing that with the grizzly bear encounters I was having and all of the dangerous river crossings, I realized that if I kept on going the way I was going, I wasn't gonna make it out alive. So I I bought a cheap bicycle and cycled the final 2,000 miles just to finish it off as a different way. Oh, wonderful. Which was very fun compared to to, to thrashing through the Canadian wilderness and covering 10 miles in, you know, 12 or 13 hours. Suddenly I could sit on a bike and ride 70 miles a day and it felt like a holiday. (laughs) It was lovely. Amazing. That's really, I didn't realize that. That's fantastic. So we've got one more final question for you. And I think that brings it around to where you're at now. So you've, you've got a family, you've got two... Teenage. teenage children um by sounds of it sort of how old are your kids now if you don't mind 18, me asking. 18 and 14 oh, okay so one heading heading into adulthood and the other one fast it's, such approaching a, that. it's such an amazing age i mean every age is brilliant so you know people i'm parents who say oh it goes too quickly i don't think it does if you pay attention every age is special but the teenage years as the adult emerges with the insights they have and the maturity they have that I didn't have at their age. It's so fantastic. It really is. How do you temper that urge that you must have to get out on the trail amongst a very conscious and clear choice to have a family? Because you're obviously very comfortable with the choice. Because I, I, you know, myself included, some days I'm like, I just want to escape and go walking. I just want to go and do something, you know, uh, really interesting I just want to leave it all behind me you know those, those I have those bad days and then other days I go I love being a dad I wouldn't change it for the world and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you have those experiences but also you've really seen what kind of that what felt what that you know massive outdoor walking experience feels like are you at peace because you've kind of done that or and you know you're going to be able to do it again or do you have those days where you really struggle and you just want to go and do something and also how do you create that balance now in your day-to-day life of actually getting out and enjoying nature in a way that's healthy for you and doesn't leave you yearning for two, for more, essentially? Well, the, the simple thing is, I mean, I made sacrifices by giving up my own country and re- moving away from my English family and friends and everything I grew up with to live in Colorado right beneath a mountain. So I can be on open space in 50 steps heading in, into the wild. And so even if I only went out for a half an hour run, um, if I just needed to get out, I have that I have that nature right there. And because I can get out every day and because I've been out for months on end, I feel like I don't need to go through a three week reimmersion experience. Nature is just a normal part of life when you get into it regularly um, because of choices and sacrifices I made and a little bit of good fortune, too. But but the other side of it is like everything I learned on those long journeys is still applicable like appreciating what you have and not focusing on what you don't have. Like there's so much about England I could miss, but what would be the point in that, of focusing on what I don't have instead of what I do here? Um, 
my journey turned me into an accidental stoic i don't know if you know much about the philosophy of stoicism yeah an ancient roman thing yeah um as i was writing my book i started learning about stoicism at the same same time and realized that like all of the insights that i have in life about appreciating the moment and about seeing value in all of the hardships even um make you know create a framework to live a life of gratitude and appreciation no matter what's going on and i mean i'm i'm in a in a, in a fortunate position that when situations like covid hit that can be so impactful and 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 harmful even if you don't have any of the you know physical ailments or 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 suffer personal loss so, um even things that hem you into having to stay within a five mile radius or whatever you can still find things to appreciate and be grateful for even in terrible situations and i i guess the the journeys i went on helped me understand those situations and i mean the, the real test will be when i'm older and can no longer walk more than 10 yards or when some terrible tragedy occurs which you never know what lies around the corner will all of will this this so-called gratitude and appreciation that i claim to have still exist then i don't know we'll see but 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 for the moment everything learned on that journey makes a you know a, a family life um without those long journeys not just bearable but an absolute pleasure okay so um we'll we'll start to wrap it up now andrew um so where is the best place for people to learn more about you um to purchase the book um uh, find you online all of that good stuff um i have a website andrewterrell.com um where i occasionally blog but blogging takes a lot of time and as with writing my books there's other things i'd rather be doing um the best place to find the books are on amazon um i know lots of people don't like amazon for some very valid reasons and i share many of those dislikes but also for people publishing independently who don't want to or can't get past the various gatekeepers in the publishing industry amazon makes getting your art form your words your writing whatever out much more achievable and actually gives authors much more um of a royalty payment than traditional publishers would um you know if 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 my book had gone to a traditional publisher i'd get 5 to 7% of the sale price um through Am- amazon it's significantly higher so they're actually a good vehicle for independent artists um so looking on on, on it's it's available on on amazon but you'll also find it in bookshops as well um although i don't get quite as much so um <laughs> people but people can make their choice so just just yeah just just do an online search for the earth beneath my feet andrew terrell um and it will it, it will pop up online fantastic well it has been truly wonderful to have you on today andrew um i really hope that at some point you do bring out some more work and i still have your second book to work through and I'm looking forward I to hope it. I haven't spoiled it with all this. No, <laughs> no, not at all. I don't. I think uh, I was pretty keen not to allow you to go. And you're obviously keen to do that, to go too much into the content of the book. So I really wanted to talk around the outsides of that. And I hope we've done that and not kind of spoiled it for anybody. I'm sure we haven't. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading the next one. Um, and I'm hoping that at some point in the future, you bring out another one. Um 
I have a feeling that you might, um, but I'm actually working on something this year, a, a different kind of journey that was prompted by something that happened towards the end of the second book. Um, it actually links together really nicely, but a different kind of journey. So we'll see where it goes, but I am working on something else. Yeah. Ah, fantastic. Left, left me with a teaser there as well, even better. So um, yeah, I'm sure we keep you updated when that comes out. But yeah, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.